You're listening to Everyday Emergency, a podcast from Doctors Without Borders. Welcome to the first ever episode of Everyday Emergency. I'm Nick Owen from Doctors Without Borders, also known by our French name, Médecins Sans Frontières, or simply MSF. In each episode, we'll be bringing you true stories from the front line of humanitarian emergencies across the world. From the conflict in Syria to the refugee crisis in Europe, we'll be talking to people with some incredible stories that may just change your outlook on life, or at least, for a moment, put things into perspective. For those of you that haven't heard of Doctors Without Borders, we're a humanitarian organisation that provides emergency medical aid to those most in need, and we're currently active in more than 60 countries across the globe. Despite our name, our teams on the ground are not just medical. We also employ logistical experts, project coordinators and communications officers, and we'll be hearing from them too. In each podcast, you'll hear a true story written by an MSFer on the ground, read by an actor. We'll then get them into the studio at MSF HQ for a chat about their time with MSF. Today's story comes from Benjamin Black, an obstetrician from London. While on his first mission in Sierra Leone in 2014, Benjamin wrote a blog about his experiences. What follows is an account of his first 24-hour shift at Gondama Referral Center at the start of an Ebola outbreak that would kill more than 11,000 people. This is a true story written by Benjamin and read by actor Charlie de Bromhead. The shift pattern for obstetricians is to take a 24-hour shift every three days. I'm one of the new generation of UK doctors and have never worked a 24-hour shift in a hospital before, so I knew whatever happened, this would be a first for me. The day itself started pretty routinely. I, I did the ward round and checked on how things worked and then settled down to wait for any patients. The first case was a 40-year-old lady who gave a history of being 16 weeks pregnant and bleeding heavily for three days. On arrival, she was barely conscious and moaning in a language that the nurses could not understand. Her heart was racing, blood pressure through the floor, working very hard on breathing and had a burning temperature. Once I had donned all the protective gear, I approached her and peered through my goggles. I felt like I was about to go snorkeling. She looked terrible. I quickly examined her. She's bleeding, but not much, and mostly passing clots. She's clearly miscarrying, but the pregnancy has not yet been expelled and is the likely source of her infection. I ask if she's been anywhere or taken anything to abort the pregnancy, but getting a history is impossible. She's delirious. There's only very basic tests available in the Gundama Referral Center, but I know she hasn't got malaria, and hasn't got much blood left. Um, The hemoglobin was 4.2 grams per deciliter. Normal is over 11 grams. I begin giving her oxygen, intravenous fluids, and antibiotics. And luckily there is blood in the bank, so order two units for transfusion. I then gave her medicine to try and complete the miscarriage and empty her uterus of the infected pregnancy. Later in the afternoon, I get a call that a couple more patients have arrived. One is a readmission, the other is being kept off the ward. There is a foul smell coming from outside of the ward. I go to see. Sitting on a stall is a lady surrounded by a mist of flies. 
She looks anorexic, leaning with her head against the wall. Her hair has been unevenly shaved and she's completely wasted away. The reason for attending is unclear. The patient, her mother and her brother each tell slightly different stories. Backstreet abortion, bleeding, pain, headache, fever, fetus crawling out and crawling back in. But there's other cause for concern. She gives a recent history of attending funerals and has bloody diarrhea, tinnitus and hiccups. All signs of Ebola. Then something strange. She's from the same town as the other lady I admitted with bleeding and fever earlier. Shit. Luckily, the Ebola team are around for a meeting and so we're quickly on hand to investigate. The more questions asked, the more suspicious it began to sound. The lady from earlier was resuscitated now and able to speak good English. She had also attended funerals and prepared the bodies. She reported seeing many people die in her village. So many I stopped counting, but couldn't say from what. And so my first shift also brought the first two suspected Ebola cases to Gandama. The isolation unit was opened and spacesuits put on. Explaining to and transferring the patients was a challenge in itself. Three of us dressed up in the characteristic plastic yellow onesies, head covering, goggles, double face mask and Wellington boots. The heat inside this gear is incredible. Within minutes I could feel the sweat dribbling down all of my limbs and it was very claustrophobic. We made our way to the labour room. Thankfully by this time the sun has gone down. Once there we placed the lady miscarrying on a stretcher and carried her to the ambulance. With every minute, the atmosphere inside the onesie turns up another notch in heat and humidity. We push the stretcher in, push again, it's not moving. Bollocks, the stretcher is too long for the isolation ambulance. So loaded on the metal stretcher, the three of us carry the patient round the hospital in our onesies to the isolation unit. We stopped occasionally to breathe a bit. I was expecting any one of us to faint at any minute. Finally, we carry her into the isolation unit and get her comfortable. We are then each sprayed with chlorine and systematically take each layer of protective gear off. This is the worst part. I just wanted to get it all off as quickly as possible, but each bit needs to be decontaminated. Once the patients had been removed, the labour room was closed for a deep clean and decontamination. As I'm rehydrating, I get a call to come to maternity. Um, an ambulance has pulled up with a woman bleeding after giving birth to a stillborn outside the clinic. This was her 10th or 11th birth, though she only had four living children. Not an uncommon story here. The membranes had ruptured early in labour, so possibly there could have been some infection prior to delivery. I poked my head in the ambulance and took a quick look. It was clear that the woman was having a massive postpartum hemorrhage. The problem was our labour room was now closed, so I had to find another way to examine the lady. There is an emergency obstetric room behind the labour room, for exactly this scenario, which has never been used. But first we had to find a way to get the ambulance there. There's a system of open drains around the hospital grounds, which are not easy to navigate, let alone in the dark. Once we got her to the room, I quickly began to work on her with the midwives. The lady was already shocked with very low blood pressure. We began squeezing fluid into her. The uterus felt very relaxed and was the likely cause of bleeding, so I began to try and rub a contraction. This briefly worked, but then she started hemorrhaging again. 
The blood loss was torrential, flowing off the bed and onto the floor. I was aware that the blood on the floor wasn't clotting, just remained watery. It's a bad sign. The lady had already received some medicine to try and contract the uterus at the clinic where she had delivered. I gave some more. In fact, I gave her all the different drugs we had, but still she bled. I explored her womb to see if there were bits of placenta inside causing her to bleed, and managed to retrieve some very small pieces, but otherwise it was empty. I rubbed and squeezed the uterus with both hands. Each time it would contract and then relax with another gush of watery blood. I knew that if the bleeding didn't stop soon, she would die. We had to get her to an operating theatre. The ambulance that brought her had left as soon as she was out, so we were stuck in the middle of the night, away from the labour ward, still closed, with this woman bleeding to death in front of us. In the end, the midwives and I loaded her onto a stretcher and ran with her to the operating theatre. This all took time, which I knew was a luxury I could not afford. Thoughts were running through my mind. What can I do to stop the bleeding? I considered putting a pressure balloon inside the uterus, or tying a large suture around it to see if these would arrest the bleeding, but it was clear by the time she got to the theatre the window of opportunity had gone. The woman was now unstable and bleeding to death. Her heart was beating at 180 per minute. It would not be able to maintain her for much longer. I knew I would need to remove the uterus altogether. Where I come from, an emergency hysterectomy for postpartum hemorrhage is a rare thing. There is blood and clotting products in the bank and interventions available to avoid such extreme measures. If a hysterectomy was contemplated, the most senior gynecologists, two at least, would be called in to perform the surgery and a consultant anaesthetist too. After surgery, the woman would almost certainly go to the intensive therapy unit for close monitoring and stabilisation. In Sierra Leone that night, there was me, a theatre nurse and an anaesthetic nurse. The anaesthetic nurse began inducing her with ketamine and told me, Doctor, she doesn't have long. Be fast. I could not believe this was my first shift on my first mission. The first time the theatre staff would see me operate and I was performing a peripartum hysterectomy on a woman in extremis. I made a midline incision, buried my hand into her pelvis and brought out her floppy and relaxed uterus. After birth, the womb should be solid and hard. Deep breath. Clamp, please. Here we go. As I clamped, cut, and tied, I kept thinking that I was going to drown in the pressure, but the theatre staff were amazing. They kept calm and focused, and when I paused to think, the nurse would gently pass me the next clamp or suggest a place to tie. I felt down for her ureters. I could feel the one on the right, but wasn't sure about the left. There are dyes which can be injected to help identify the ureters or damage to them, but none were available in this theatre. I stopped, looked, felt, stopped again. In the end, I had to make a decision. The womb had to come out. After I had amputated the womb from her body, I looked down into the pelvis. Every edge was oozing. This was not surprising. I knew from when she arrived that she had probably already consumed most of her clotting factors during the bleed. So I began suturing edges together, putting pressure packs and then removing them. Eventually, the pelvis was dry. I washed it out, checked again, and then closed. Operating in the full protective gear was exhausting. Small pools of sweat had collected in the base of my goggles. Towards the end of surgery, it was clear that the patient had not produced any urine for a while. Had I stopped her from dying by removing her uterus only to kill her by removing her ureters? 
The anesthetic nurse gave a drug to try and increase the urine output. It worked. There is no intensive therapy unit here, so the patient returned to the ward and was put to rest on her bed. We managed to get two units of blood for her, one of which had malaria, so we started treatment for that. She was weak and pale, but alive. The two isolated patients turned out to be negative for Ebola, though one died whilst waiting for the results. The lady who had a hysterectomy after an initially rocky post-operative period now continues to make excellent progress and I'm hopeful she will be going home soon. Quite an initiation to obstetrics at Gundama Referral Center. Balancing the care of obstetric patients against screening and protecting ourselves from Ebola and Lassa fever will continue to be a challenge, but this is the current context in which we are working. Since writing that post in 2014, Benjamin has been on other missions with MSF to Central African Republic and then back to Sierra Leone, this time helping to reopen a hospital after the Ebola epidemic ravaged the country. We got him into the studio shortly after his return. Welcome back, Benjamin. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing all right. I'm feeling okay. How does it feel to come back from a mission? Well, I think it depends uh, largely on, on how the mission was. I've been on a few missions now, so for me, it's I come back and my brain very quickly switches over to London time. As soon as I uh, feel the cold air or get on the tube, then uh, it basically feels like I haven't been away at all. It's uh, it's like flicking a switch in my brain. So mission brain and non-mission brain, and yeah, the transition is very quick. Um, and then processing a mission usually comes later. My first mission was slightly unusual because. Uh, we had this emergency that developed during the course of the mission with the Ebola outbreak. So coming back after that was, was maybe slightly different to uh, after other times. There was more to talk about and there was a lot of interest in what had been happening and also a lot of frustration that I needed to vent um, from the situation that was on the ground. Uh, whereas subsequent missions, it's much more a case of getting back into the real world. Well, maybe a different world, space to the real world, my real world. And, um, yeah, just carrying on with life. In the story we just heard, you'd gone to Sierra Leone to work as an obstetrician, but found yourself in the midst of an Ebola outbreak. How did you get your head around that? So, yeah, I think, I think in medicine in general, you have to expect the unexpected. Uh, even if I was working in a hospital in London, you never know what's going to come through the doors in your night shift. MSF is just a slightly more extreme version of that because you're in a less controlled situation. You might not have all the resources that you would normally have at your disposal. You might be the only person there at that time capable of doing certain things. And so you need to be a little bit more innovative. I think that it's true that you do have to expect the unexpected, but I think also that now is an expectation in itself. You just have to be open-minded and, and be ready for things to change and things can change very quickly. They might change that it gets very busy. They might change that actually it becomes very quiet and you find that you've got nothing to do and you thought you'd have lots to do. Um, but I think the key is to remain flexible and as open-minded as you can and just roll with it. On your latest mission, you were back in Sierra Leone to reopen a hospital after Ebola was declared over, but then a new case was found while you were there. Tell us a bit more about that. 
for me, the most striking thing was that I just, and, and I know it sounds quite corny, but I just kept thinking, oh my God, this is a nightmare. This is, I was really, for the first 24 hours, thinking I'm going to wake up. I spent a good amount of time in, in the outbreak and I really hadn't, although I knew it was possible, I hadn't really prepared myself for the idea that I would be getting back into that yellow suit and making the very difficult decisions that come with the context of, of an Ebola outbreak, deciding which patients can go through, which patients have to be isolated. The greatest thought at the beginning was certainly, I want to wake up. So the outbreak had been declared over and this new case arose. How, how did the team respond to that? So the way that it happened, as with many things in Sierra Leone, is that the rumour mill kicked in before the uh, official announcement came. So a small group of us within, within the team had an idea earlier on um, of, of what might be coming. And we went and investigated the situation a little bit, spoke with people, um, found out a bit more about what may have happened and then fed that back to the wider team. In general, everyone was calm. There was no panic, which is exactly as things should be with any sort of emergency, but especially with Ebola, you always go slow and take your time and think things through. The team largely just got on with it. We knew that we were going to have some very challenging days ahead of us. There was a small group of us who had had a significant amount of Ebola experience. There was a larger group that hadn't been around during the outbreak. So in the first couple of days, the smaller group of us took it upon ourselves to make sure that things were in order. The hospital was set up. We had isolation areas to check on all of the patients for any concerning signs and symptoms to liaise with other organisations. Of course, the whole world arrives very soon after you have the announcement of an Ebola outbreak. So the spotlight was on where we were. And that, that of course, brings about a lot of other work, communication and just meetings and meetings and meetings but everyone pulled together uh, and like like we said you know people were flexible people kept an open mind and they went with it and we worked really I think incredibly well as a team not just as a team of MSF but as a team in the wider sense with the Ministry of Health with the WHO with the CDC with all the other actors that come into that um, you know we're not an island in these situations and and the way that you can have a really positive outcome and, and positive working relationship is that you work as one wider team and that really is how I feel things went in this situation. How did, how did the people in Magbaraka where the hospital is based react to the news? The local people reacted in different ways. Personally I, I didn't come across any negativity. I felt that everyone came to work. I was worried that people would be frightened to come to the hospital knowing that we had Ebola cases inside the hospital but everybody came, everybody pitched in and worked together. There were some issues in other parts of the country where um, there was resistance to uh, the information that there was new cases or um, people quite understandably not wanting to be put into quarantine. Uh, there were, as there was in the main outbreak, people who declared that this was not Ebola, that there was a conspiracy or that it wasn't true. These were all things that we saw before they were there was nothing new with that the main thing that we saw is that people stopped coming to the hospital um from a patient perspective and sierra leone you know without ebola has some of the worst health indicators in the world where people desperately need to be able to access healthcare and they need to be able to access it in a timely manner when you have 
a case of Ebola that spreads a huge amount of fear through the community and it makes people not want to come to the hospitals or to go to their health centres. And what you see is an increase in numbers of people dying, far more than the people dying from Ebola, but dying in their communities or dying because they get to the hospital incredibly late. In your latest blog post about your recent time in Sierra Leone, you tell this story of a woman who finally managed to deliver a baby after seven unsuccessful pregnancies. And you said that this was a sort of symbol of your recent mission in Sierra Leone. What, what do you mean by that? We had seen firsthand the devastation that the Ebola outbreak brought to general health services the closure of other hospitals and other centres and the way that people would not engage with healthcare out of fear and the the terrible results that had for mortality rates. The reason we were back in Sierra Leone, the purpose of this project was to be able to provide maternal and child healthcare specifically, but more broadly speaking, health services that could continue despite an Ebola outbreak. To be able to give a woman a safe delivery at a time when there was a simultaneous outbreak of Ebola in the same town, to me, symbolises that we achieved that objective. This woman would have died herself had she not delivered in hospital. She had a huge hemorrhage, postpartum hemorrhage. We were able to manage that situation. We were able to deal with it because we were in hospital and because she had come to us to have a safe delivery. There were many, many, many women exactly the same as her who died from the same thing during the last outbreak. And so for me, yes, she uh, symbolises how easy it is actually to provide life-saving care in this country. So you're back in the UK now. What does the future hold for Benjamin Black? So um, I am back in the UK. I'm quite cold. Um, I will be going back to work in uh, a London hospital for a while. And uh, I will reflect on my last couple of years doing missions for MSF and decide what, what will be the next step for me from there. We're really going to miss having you on the blogs. Would you have any advice for anyone considering working for MSF? Well, I would first of all recommend it. I think that it's incredibly challenging, but equally rewarding, and that uh, you will learn a lot working for MSF, but you'll also learn a lot about yourself. What would I recommend? Don't take too much with you. You never need as much as you think you will. So just keep your bag light. And uh, yeah, if you're thinking about it, go for it. It's an incredibly worthwhile thing to have done in, in your life. What's it helped you learn about yourself? Is it is it something quantifiable? Well, I think that I have um, seen both the good and the not so good ways that I deal with stress. And there's a lot to learn from that. Living and working with the same small group of people all day and then all night teaches you some things about yourself as well. And maybe it gives some perspective to life in general and how we view the day-to-day things that we take for granted. Thanks very much for coming in and talking with us today, Benjamin. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Benjamin is actually one of our most prolific bloggers, so if you'd like to read more from him, head over to blogs.msf.org and search for Benjamin Black. As this is our first podcast, we'd love to hear your feedback. What do you like? What do you hate? Who would you like to hear from? Get in touch with us on Twitter at msf underscore UK, on Instagram at Doctors Without Borders, or on Facebook. Next time on Everyday Emergency, we'll be hearing from Michael Sheck, a Scottish nurse who has recently returned from a mission in South Sudan, where he had to deal with outbreaks of measles and malaria, as well as two medical emergencies at 20,000 feet. Be sure to tune in.
for more true stories from the front line of medical emergencies. Subscribe via your podcast provider or visit msf.org.uk slash podcast. <laughs>